Hello, everyone. This is David Seitz at Practical Catholic. As I get older, I am realizing that a lot of the cliches that we now know, such as the grass is always greener on the other side, are so true. They have such timeless wisdom that I start listening to them. We need to listen to them, but there is one cliche that I totally disagree with, which I will explain at the end of this episode. But in most cases, all of them have such timeless wisdom. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is about cliches and how they tie in with the Bible and theology, and to show how practical and theologically correct they are. Welcome to another episode of Practical Catholic with David Cease. Practical Catholic is a spiritual coaching show to help you find peace, love, and joy in family and work life. We are here each and every week to help you grow spiritually, to become successful in this life, and to be a saint for the life after. My story begins when I was a teenager. A long time ago, um, and that was a long time ago, uh, I used to uh, talk to a lot of uh, elderly people, uh, whether because I had a desire to go in the military and I talked to veterans, or my mom looked, worked at a um, senior assisted living. And so a lot of times when they were introducing their wife or they were talking about their wife, they had a cliche that would say, I'd like to introduce you to my better half. And they were talking about their wife, um, uh, you know, being the better half. And I remember scratching my head and saying, what does that mean? I have no idea what that means. Now, recently, um, I just celebrated my 25th anniversary with my wife, and I totally understand. In fact, um, I was talking, I had lunch with uh, a good friend of mine, and we were reminiscing about our uh, early young lives as young uh, men, you know, teenagers and young 20s. And uh, we were sharing how, um, you know, we were pretty troubled, you know, um, even with me, uh, I was drinking a lot and, and uh, get, you know, partying and doing a lot of things. And so was this other uh, person that I had lunch with. And know that uh you know the, the the one person even shared with me is like i don't you know i don't even know why my wife what my wife saw in me and i you know i said the same with me and we were just kind of sharing and everything and you know i did mention the one thing to my friend i said to him that you know the one thing that you do have um in a, you know is a really good and caring heart even though you might have had some problems uh teenage years and early 20s you really have a great heart. And I think that's what your your wife saw on you. But both of us totally agreed that the better half was our wives. And that cliche, the better half, is really, really so true. When you find a, a really good wife as a husband or find a really good husband if you're um, a wife, they are the better half. And... You know, we are called actually to to find that better half. If you if you look at uh, any great people, um, there's always um, whether it's a uh, a woman, there's always a man behind that woman, or if it's a, um, a man, there's always a woman. You know, you look at uh, Jesus, right? Jesus had Mary, and and, and Mary has Jesus, right? Uh, that is the perfection of uh, you know female and male here on earth. Uh, Joseph has Mary, and Mary has Joseph, right? Uh, you have St. Clair and St. Francis. You have St. John of the Cross and uh, St. Teresa of Avila. You know, so there, um, and if you look at it, you know, a lot of great saints that were males, you can always see that they had a great uh, 
a mother who who uh, helped them become a, a great saint or inspired them. There is, uh, and then of course, uh, St. Therese's uh, um, uh, parents, Zelie and uh, Louis Martin. You know, it's it was very, very important. And so that cliche, the better half, is important also because, you know, one thing that uh, marriage needs to have is the ability to always um, help each other grow. And my wife has made me grow. And I hope that my example, she has grown. So the, the better half cliche helps us understand that if your spouse isn't helping you to grow, or if you are discerning to be married, you should really discern, is this person going to help me grow? Am I only looking at it from a standpoint of the, the basic necessities, you know, the woman looking for, for monetary compensation and, and the male for, you know, for luster reasons? Or are they really going to help me grow and become holy? That's where the better half comes into play. And in marriage, you know, uh, because uh, the cliches have to be tied into the Bible, and, and, and there is so much, right? I want to read you this one scripture line from Genesis. It says, just as Genesis 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? Almost to imply in that one verse, to say, to be godlike is really to be complemented male and female, okay? And, uh, of course, the most, uh, the other thing that I really love is Genesis chapter 2 in the, in the second creation of, of man and woman. He says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its peace with flesh. And then it says, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and this is really important, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. Cleaves, okay? I mean, to me, that's an imagery of that the man is literally like holding on to his wife as if the wife is almost like a, you know, um, uh, you know, so important, you know, uh, that uh, he doesn't want to leave that person. And that is the better half, okay? So the cliche has so many meanings and is supported by the Bible that is so important. The one thing I want to talk about is what is a cliche? You know, cliche is, is a timeless saying. I mean, and so we got to understand that, you know, these sayings aren't around, you know, because they're not true or, or because they're, they're false. I, they're, one of them is, and I, I, I will have to talk about that. Uh, maybe it's a perception why it's false for me, at least. But we have to say that they are around because every generation keeps repeating it over and over again because there's some truth to it or a lot of truth to it. And it's practical, okay? No one would continue saying something if something wasn't true or something 
wasn't practical, at least in, in, the, in the world, right? So um, the, the biggest thing here is the fact that cliches are timeless and they're practical. That's why they continue to run its course. So I'm going to go through um, at least 10, if maybe 11 cliches supported by the Bible and explain what they mean. <clears throat> okay? The first is actions speak louder than words. We, we say that, right? Actions speak louder than words. Or sometimes we say keeping your word. Are you going to keep your word? Right? And what does that mean? It means the ability to um, do things that you say and say what you do. You know, a lot of times uh, people just, uh, you know, say words and they don't care about what they say and they just say it and they don't follow up with actions. All right. Um, more importantly is not just that, but you know what? Actions do speak louder than words. You know, a lot of times people will say that, um, you know, leadership by example, you know, is another cliche um, that kids don't learn through what you say. Kids never learn in what you say. Kids learn from what you do. That is important. Why? Why would pe- kids learn more from what you do than what you say? Well, I think one reason is because when um, kids don't know how to behave just because you tell them to say that. Like, if you tell a child, be patient, well, what does that mean? Like, a kid really knows how to imitate what patience is. They might know what the definition of patience is, but to behave patiently, how are they going to do that? That would be no different than saying, hey, uh, my five-year-old daughter, go ahead and change the tire uh, in my car, right? You know? There's, a, there's an old saying that says, um, if you tell me what to do, I'll ignore it. If you show me what, um, how to do it, I might understand it. But if you get me involved in doing it, then I will willingly do it. In other words, just by saying something doesn't mean that they're going to get it. And most likely it's going to get ignored. But the actions speak louder than words because they see it. They imitate it. And that's what kids do. Kids and all other people will imitate behaviors because they see how that behavior should play out. Not what they're hearing because they don't know how to imitate when they just hear something about something, you know? So, and we do that. Look at YouTube, right? When I fix a car, I hate reading directions. Or if someone were to tell me, you know, this is how you you fix the car, I'd be like, I don't know. But you show me a YouTube, uh, uh, YouTube how-to, and I'll f- perfectly know how to do something with the car. So actions speak louder than words. And where does that come from? Um, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your shine before let your light shine before men, so that your good works, not your good sayings, your good works, okay, will glory God. So actions speak louder than words. All right. The next cliche 
right? This one is the grass is always greener on the other side, right? It always is. You know, another one that's kind of similar to that one is keeping up with the Joneses, right? Uh, they're kind of similar in those ways. So what does that mean? You know, I have now about, I have four teenagers. And I think one of the, 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 the things that uh, teenagers go through is that they get kind of tired of the home life. I mean, you know what it is. It's, it's, you're, you're tired of it. It's the same old you know, thing. And, you know, um, other people's houses are better. Other, other, other parents' food is better. Everything's better at the uh, other places, right? And, uh, and, and, and um, you know, the teenage kids complain about homes like, Dad, why can't we be like, you know, the blah, blah, blah. They have really good food over there. And, you know, or, you know, we, you know, you go over to XYZ's house and their house is so much cleaner and so much better and so much more organized than our house. And then they go somewhere else and, you know, all this other stuff. So the grass is always greener somewhere else. Or how about when um, the person in a, uh, you know, is trying to look for a job. You know, I'm not very happy with this job. Um, and they go and they think that, you know, this other job is going to be better and happier and it's going to be in there. And the sad thing about it is we chase after all of these things that we think are better. But the problem with the grass is always greener on the other side is that you are not living in the present moment with what you have, you know, that's the worst demise that you can think of is that you really, really can't uh, appreciate what you have for the now, what you really, really have. That's why my kids are like always complaining. You know, I, I remember reading this one uh, Facebook. Um, I joined this group in the Facebook and, and this woman said, hey, does, is anybody saying that they like to, uh, their, ch- their child wants to, uh, you know, disown their own family and live with another family. And I chuckled and said, that's just the teenage years. You know what I mean? Uh, they think this other family is going to be better. Okay. Um, but in the meantime, it isn't because I can tell you, I've got other teenagers from other families who are like, oh, I would like to, to go over to Cease's house or my house. You know what I mean? So certainly it's just the period that they're going through this teenage years that the grass is always greener. And if we continue this through our whole entire lives, we're just chasing after dry grass, not, you know, greener. Because really what makes the grass green is you. And you can make the grass green in your own present moment. That's what you can do. All right? So let's listen to uh, the scripture quote that I chose but the grass is always greener on the other side. And this is the story of the prodigal son. And I'm going to emphasize certain areas, right, that are important. The story goes like this, and Jesus says, and he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. And he divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in loose living. All right? So, 
he definitely thought it was better to go to these other countries and, and you know, basically see the world, right? And all its uh, sinfulness and lust. And, he's, and he did that. He took his inheritance from his father, right? He didn't notice any of the, his, his uh, life growing up and how his father was so wonderful, right? He didn't notice that his father took care of him, you know, and probably made him happy. Probably had him, you know, very, very happy. But he thought that if, if I had brought money and I can go far away in the country, I can make it on my own. I could do it without my dad, you know, because I'm better, smarter. Right? And what dad's doing, he's probably doing something really ridiculous, you know, even though the man, his father was very wealthy for giving him so much money. And so we went in this journey thinking, oh, you know what? I'm going to be better, smarter. I'm going to make more money. Um, you know, and I'm going to have uh, all this luxury and great things. And what does he do? He squanders it. Squanders his property and loose living. Gets sucked up into the world. And what happens to him? And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country. And he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, this is very important, to feed swine. You know, I, you know Jewish people consider swine uh, a dirty animal, you know, so they can't eat pork. So imagine, he's taking care of swine. This means that he's living in a world, the Gentile world, okay, I mean, any Jewish person would realize that. He's living in a Gentile world. Why? Because only Gentiles would have swine, pigs, right? So he knows that, you know, that's what's going on. And he's so desperate that he's willing to go through against his religious beliefs and work with swine, right? And then listen to this. He's so desperate now. He says, and the prodigal son here would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay? No one gave him anything. This is how harsh. The reality is it looks great, and it might be great for a little bit, but then they really, you know, it winds up being that is just as harsh. Okay? Now listen to this point that the son realized, the prodigal son. But when the prodigal son came to himself, meaning dawned on him, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him. Okay, we'll stop there. He came to his senses. He learned to appreciate his father. If he had just learned to live in the present moment, to appreciate the grass is actually greener at my own house. This would not have happened. But he realizes it now, right? And he says, I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your higher servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was yet a distance, his father saw him and had compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. Yes, Yes, what he was missing out was the love of his father. What, that's the grass that's greener. His father who took care of him, who raised him, 
who gave him a, he was never in need, but most importantly, that his father loved him. And that was the greatest greener grass there can be. Yet we think that we can find the world, we can be greater than, and the world has everything that's out there. And it isn't. The grass is greener. And the grass is greener where? In the church, in the mass, in Jesus Christ. And it, it truly is greener there. So let's go to the next uh, cliche. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Okay? Or leadership by example. We heard that statement. It says the apple doesn't fall from the tree, far from the tree. And what does that mean? That really means that our children really become what we are. This is so important. And I see it in my my family. Uh, As my kids grow up, I see it. You know, uh, you, you can see my kids like growing more like me or more like my wife, because my wife and I, we kind of have a, um, we're, we're uh, dissimilar in, in, the, uh, in our behaviors. So it's funny. You can see that starting happening, right? Uh, and and, and they're, they're kind of falling. And some of them are a little bit of a mix of both, but most of the cases, they're, they're kind of going one or the other. And that's okay. That's not the, a, a bad thing. But here's the, the, the thing that goes on, right? Is that this is the importance of parents becoming saints. All right? This is why parents need to be saints. All right? Because of this cliche, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. They're going to imitate what you are. And the vices that you have, they will acquire those vices. You have anger management problems, they're going to have anger management problems. You have um, lustful issues, they're going to have lustful issues. Okay? It's, no, it's not ironic that most people who are alcoholics have alcoholics within their family. It's not because, I mean, I, certainly there must be a biological issue. I'm not going to say that. You know, there might be a little bit, but if you're exposing your kids to alcohol because of your behavior and because of your poor example, you know, that is what's going to happen. If you drink responsibly, they'll probably drink responsibly. So, you know, also understand is when you abuse alcohol, you're just saying to that other, uh, to your children, hey, it's okay to abuse alcohol. All right. And then how in the world are you going to tell your children you can't abuse alcohol if you're doing it yourself? So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The vices that we have will be given to our children because that's the example that they're going to see. But conversely, virtue will also be transported. So if you can convert those vices to virtue or if you become virtuous, they will become virtuous. If you're excited about uh, uh, you know, got Jesus and everything else, they'll be excited about Jesus. So you can't expect them to be great saints if you're not a saint, okay? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Kids learn from their parents. That's what happens. And that's what that cliche is all talking about. Now let's read this. Now this comes from, uh, this is the Bible quote, it comes from John chapter 13, 
verses 12 to 16. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then you, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Now, think about this. This is a great example, right? If we truly want to be Christians, and we want, we don't, uh, and we, you know, as the saying goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And even Jesus says, by their fruits, you will know them. Okay? It's a kind of similar. This means that if we are to be Christ-like, if we are to fall off the Christian tree, right, and that apple doesn't fall from the tree, it would say that we have to serve others. We have to be willing to even wash a person's feet. And so many have I seen that sometimes people who are, you know, daily masters or whatever, will not bow down to wash a person's feet. But it says right here, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than who who sent them. So we are called to serve. We are called to even go down to wash a person's feet, which was very, very lowly in those days. So if we truly want to be uh, uh, fall uh, as an apple from the Christian tree or Christ tree, then we need to learn to serve. Conversely, or not conversely, but following up, if we as parents, all right, with children, want to raise holy children, we need to strive for holiness. It's not what we say, but what we do. And so we have to strive for holiness. And you know, the irony of this is I've never, ever, ever read a book, okay, a parenting book that ever says to be a great parent, you need to become a saint, okay? You need to change yourself. 99.9% of the books out there will say, this is how you become a good, you know, how to uh, manage your children. You tell them this, you do this, you do that. You know, uh, you, there are consequence charts. There are all these things about how to manipulate your children. But no books talk about great, being a great parent by manipulating yourself, by controlling yourself, by eliminating the vices that you have and um, improving by creating virtues. Okay. That's what we need to do. But no book is ever going to sell because who wants to change themselves to become a great parent? It's easier to change wanting to be able to push buttons to change your children. But that will never work because eventually when the kids turn 13, 14 years old, they're going to realize that this is dumb. 
Why do I have to follow what mommy and daddy tell me, even though they're not even following it? Right? Goes back to, you know, the idea that, you know, actions speak louder than words. So, apple doesn't fall far from the tree, you know, or aka leadership by example. So, the next cliche, you can't judge a book by its cover. Okay? And I call, I, I call this, this uh, there's a new cliche now called the cancel generation. You can't judge a book by its cover. I don't know how many times um, this generation or any generation has become so judgmental um, in, you know, uh, in the way that we, we quickly judge what's going on. And we've created this new thing called the cancel generation where they're able to just cancel something very quickly because they become very judgmental, right? Um, if you said something bad, if you did something bad or, or whatever, I mean, just look at what's going on about people who, um, you know, at one time they, they uh, uh, I don't know, they, they said something about, um, you know, black people or Hispanic people or Chinese people. You know what? We all make mistakes, okay? We all make mistakes. You know, there's another cliche that says, he who lives in glass houses shouldn't be throwing stones. And that could be followed in here as well. We can't be judgmental in so quick to judge and start canceling things because of it. We have to be, and, and we know there is a level of judgment we have to make. I mean, if the, if the person has a persistence hardness of heart, I agree with you. We need to cancel that. But there's a, a, there's a difference between that and we all made mistakes in our lives. We all sinned in our lives. Even great saints sinned. The only saint that did not sin, okay, was Mary. But we all sinned in our lives. There are things that I regret, okay? There are, but not only that, but you know, generations and things that happened in the past were accepted at that time and were inculcated and we can't judge the past based off of that sometimes. You know, um, you know, the Catholic Church, when they recognize certain things that occurred, will always say, in the past, will always say that there are certain cultural behaviors that happened and occurred in the past that were accepted as the norm. And the present cannot judge that past. But it's easy for us to condemn it. It's easy for us to look back and say, oh, that was so horrible. That was so bad. Okay. But it was accepted at that time. All right. So, you know, we can be very judgmental in that aspect of the past as well as the present when we see people's past um, and, they, and the, what they behave. Okay. So what Bible uh, verse do we, we go look at? Well, we go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye 
when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And we do that. We look at the speck when there's a big log in our own eyes. You know, that's what we have to do. In fact, even more importantly, is we have to focus on ourselves, not focus on others. You know, it's when our senses and our uh, eyes are shifting to judge other people, you know, that's wrong. This is wrong. That's it. That's not right. Our default behavior should be, how are we judging ourselves? How are we judging ourselves based off the standards of Christ? And am I meeting that? Okay? That's how what we should be judging it on. But it's very easy now to judge other people because we have likes, we have... Um, you know, ways of social media that instantly tells us good, bad, or indifferent about certain things. And that's what happens, which is facilitates this idea of being judged. And, you know, that is one of the causes of poor self-esteem in, I think, young adults. I think, you know, I was reading about... Um, you know, uh, problems with social media for young children and um, in the suicide rates and everything else that are that is occurring. And I have to agree with this because in a sense that young children should not be on social media, you know, or be, should be removed from, from, you know, being directly in contact with social media. And the reason I say that is young children or young, even young adults, all right, uh, not our household... They're not allowed to use social media until, you know, their senior year in high school. Um, because for, there's many reasons why. And, and judgment is first. Social media is a great way, not a great way, but social media judge, quickly judges and, and, it ha, and it facilitates that judgment, uh, and, which is wrong. And so these young kids can get beat up very, very easily, okay, through social media, you know, being liked, unliked, you know. I remember being young, and it was it was hard just being ignored with with your friends in person. Now you can have people go viral and and and, and have you disliked just through social media. You know, no wonder it's impacting you know self esteem with young kids. No wonder it's impacting the suicide rate. You know, I and that's the reason why. We don't allow social media at the get-go. So it's, it's such an easy way to be judgmental and express that, okay? And especially in a computer world. I'll tell you, you know, I'm a computer science major, and people behave differently when they're behind a computer. It's easier to be angrier, it's easier to be mean, and it's easier to be... Uh, you know, manipulative in a computer, you know, and I saw that in college when I was working with computers and I, and I see it nowadays, even working with IT because they have the wall of the computer, the shield of the computer to hide what they are. It's almost like an alter ego. 
And so this judgmental behavior is easily expressed through social media that young kids do not need to be exposed to. So I would recommend not having social media at least until their senior year in high school. Uh, none of the social media, not even any type of contact because they can easily be uh, piled on. But yeah, cliche. You can't judge a book by its cover. And social media judges a book by its cover, by its externals, and not the internals, not the what a person who really is. Um, you know, my um, wife always said, you know, if my wife judged a book by its cover, I would never have been married to my wife. I can tell you that because my book cover was ugly, okay? Even though I was in the Marines, you know, um, but my inside, my heart, and my wife always says to me, even when, and it's funny because every time we fight or we, we have an argument um, and uh, everything, she always say, or disagreement, she always say, David, you know, I married you because I really saw a wonderful man in your heart. Um, I hope she never loses that. But um, so she didn't judge the book by its cover. And, um, and that's how we met. Next cliche, you can't please everyone. Okay, you can't please everyone. You can't. Okay, which, which another one, a cliche says, you can please some of the people all the time. You can please all of the people some of the time. But you can never please all of the people all of the time. So I think it's, it's important for us to understand that, you know, you know, there is a point in our lives where we're trying to please everyone, right? We're trying to get this and that. And, um, you know, you know, there's only one person we need to please and that is God. Okay. God. All right. When it comes to man, it's hard to please. All right. There's many reasons why, you know, human beings are fickle. Human beings have standards that are wavering. Uh, you know, human beings, um, you know, go from one thing to another. You can't please, you know, all the people all the time. And social media and, and you know, the news and entertainment will see that. How many, you know, entertainers rise and fall? How many, you know, sports people rise and fall? You know, uh, how many politicians rise and fall, right? So the point you have to look at it is say, you know, I will do the best to do two things. One is to love God and to please him, you know, and second is to do good works to express my love to others. And you know what? And I'm going to say this. Love does not mean that people like you. Okay, love does not. When we do acts of love towards other people, they might not like you. All right. Now look at Jesus. Look at the cross. The cross represents the greatest love story in the world, in history, in the universe. And yet, what happened? Was that love reciprocated by the people? No. The Romans crucified him. The Jews abandoned them. And all his friends left him. All his disciples, except for one, which was John and his mother. And, you know, and, and a couple of other disciples. But if you look at it, love doesn't mean that you're liked by other people. 
Love means that you want the good of another person. You know, a parent who loves a child might have to give them that child a consequence for doing something wrong. Might have to correct that child. And that child might not like that mother or that father for doing that. So instead of chasing after being liked or trying to please everyone, learn to love God because he'll love you back. And with that, you'll be able to love others and not worry whether you're being liked by others or pleasing them. Okay? That's not what we're called for. Uh, The verse I chose on this one is, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And I say that because, you know, I say, you know, entertainers are there to please people. You know, at the end of the day, you know, the reason why they're, you know, the reason why, you know, I, I heard that uh, the, the Golden Globes were on and there was a slap of reality to a lot of entertainers uh, there that uh, the hosts, I didn't watch it, I don't watch television, but I was, um, you know, hearing hearsay and a couple of things. But from my understanding, the host uh, was slapping some reality to say, you know, you're just entertainers. Okay, what is you know, what do you know about, you know, social politics and how to run people and everything else? You know, just get your award and go, basically. And, and I was like, wow, that's pretty much slap of reality. But you know what these people are? Most of these people are just self-pleasing and pleasing others. You know, self-grandizing other for themselves and others so that they can create this little click. And, you know, and it's a shame, you know, because I don't think Hollywood used to be that way. There were some great actors and actresses that really, really uh, didn't do that. You know, they wanted to show their acting abilities to show what evil was all about, good and evil, um, and to rise above that. But we have now gone into a place in the entertainment world where it's just self-grandizement based off of pleasing their own people and clicking, you know, and clicks. So uh, somehow kudos to the uh, Glo- the Globe moderator or whatever it is for... Um, for basically telling the truth. Okay, next cliche. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Or I always love to say, no pain, no gain. All right. Um, You know, it's one of the things we have to understand is pain is always in this world. It really is. And in today's society, uh, two things has happened to to um, to prevent this pain. Actually, three things, okay? Um, the uh, first, you know, so let me, let me add, this cliche is so important, okay? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, okay? It's basically saying is that, you know, in this life of pain and struggle, it will actually make us stronger, right? Virtue can only be a virtue if it's tested. That means you're going to go through pain, right? How do you know your patient? How do you practice patient? Through the struggle and the testing of being patient. It's when that child is yelling and screaming at the mall, right? And, you know, all you want to do is gag the child possibly and just like throw them in the car. 
But you calmly control yourself and you say, honey, we need to not behave that way and talk to that child. Or when that teenager is yelling and screaming at you saying, I want to go over here and you're not being reasonable with mom and dad. And you know that that person isn't a great person to be with. And you say, no, in a patient, calm way. That's the pain. That's the struggle. Every athlete knows this secret. Every athlete knows that you accept the pain of practice, of repetitiveness, of exercising, whether it be mental or whether it be physical. You know, I used to tell my kid, I, I tell my kids, when I played football, I used to almost throw up before my, my football games or wrestling matches. I was in so dire stress. But you know, that pain that you feel, you'll learn to overcome it. You'll learn to, you know, to build virtue. But if we do not do that, we will not be, we will not never grow. We, we will never grow in virtue. We will never grow in as a human being. But there's three things that America is falling under the trap with that is causing this to occur where we become weak and lack of virtue, right? Because being a saint is going to be the cross, a.k.a. pain, okay? And that first is the idea that pain is evil, okay? We have so many drugs, okay? I mean, we have a whole issues with... Um, Opioids in America, opioids, and, and as studies have found, it's because the reason why opioids are coming back is because we medically prescribe opioids to people, which caused addiction, and once they couldn't get the med medicinal opioids, they went to the street opioids, right? And that's because pain is evil. Pain is not evil. Suffering is not evil. Suffering is redemptive. Pain can be redemptive. So pain, you know, I remember, you know, it, it's just, it's a prescription. My wife delivered all of our children without drugs. And she would write it in her birth, you know, whatever, her birth document, doing that. And she wasn't trying to be this manly woman or anything like that, or trying to prove something. It was the fact that the, the pain is, you know, redemptive. It's okay. We don't need to always drug and medicate ourselves. All right? And, you know, a corollary to this self-medification is because America is so wealthy, we have luxury. Luxury is the antithesis of pain. It's the antithesis of pain. You're never going to grow in luxury. You're never going to grow. All right. In fact, it's going to be almost difficult to grow if you have uh, luxury things. All right. Uh, both morally, spiritually, as well as physically. So that's problem one. The second problem is this: um, um, we've made safety into a god. Everything is safe. Um, I was reading. I'm uh, not reading. I was listening to something. Uh, um, where they were calling, no, I was reading, I apologize, I was reading a magazine, 
And um, it was saying how uh, they're calling it nanny technology. All right. All of this technology in a car is now called nanny technology. Now, I have no issues with nanny technology. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that. But we have created this idea that safety is a God to the point where kids really can't become kids without being worried about everything that's out there. All right. Um, You know, it's, you know, the idea that kids can go out and play uh, out in the street, you know, um, all these things that are going on, you know, let's look at bullies. And I'm going to use that as an example. Now, I'm not saying that I accept bullies. Okay. Uh, I'm not saying that bullying is acceptable. Bullying is not acceptable. And in fact, I used to be the most anti-bully when I was growing up because I was bullied myself. But I do have to say that we created this sheltered bullying environment for our kids that when they become older and we're seeing this, you can't even correct them because that's considered you're being bullying, right? Self-sensitive. Everyone's a winner kind of mentality. Instead of saying, no, you actually lost. This, this is not it. And the reality is that life is a bully, okay? Life is a bully. Um, you can't control other people. But when we, we hypersent, when, once, when we protect our children to the point when they're 18, 20 years old and we throw them out in the world, okay, they can't cope, all right? That's no different than bringing, let's say, uh, raising a lion or a bear, and you've been feeding that bear, you've been taking, protecting that bear, and then all of a sudden you let it go in the wild. Do you think it's really going to survive that well? Answer is no. It has it hasn't been taught how to hunt, how to kill, how to you know run and exercise. It's been fed the whole time. It's been protected the whole time. You know, any animal researcher will tell you that it's hard. When to take a domesticated, you know, sheltered animal and then say, live out in the wild. And that's what we're doing with the over safety is that when we protect them, we're not allowing them to, to, to defend themselves, to grow in themselves. Now, there's age appropriateness, you know, about that. But we have gone to the extreme on uh, this hovering and overly protective children. Um, we, you know, we, we really, really have to the point where um, I don't think these, uh, the, at least the newer generation, know even how to survive. So important, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger. And I'll read you the scripture quote. It comes from Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 23. And Jesus said to all, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory 
and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Yeah. Must deny himself and take up his cross. Think about that. Do you think that's painful? It is. You must deny yourself. Not think of yourself. Okay? So, what's the next cliche? Next cliche is, love is blind. Never count the cost. All right? Um, There is so many times where we really, really... uh, One of the things I love about um, love and and, spirituality is meditating... And I remember one time I, I would uh, clean the kitchen a lot of times. And um, when I got angry at my wife, I used to tell her, you know, honey, I, you know, you don't appreciate me because I clean the dishes. I do this. I do that. And I do that. And I remember saying to myself, you know, I'm going to do this out of love to clean the dishes. And yet, on the other hand, I'm yelling at my wife saying, you don't appreciate me. You know what? Then it's not love. If you are cleaning the dishes to be appreciated for cleaning the dishes, which I was yelling at my wife for, for telling me that she's not doing that, then that is not love. That's a servant. That's an employee. Because even though your payment is not money, your payment is appreciation. Love is blind. Love doesn't care whether you're appreciated or not, recognized or not. Okay, you don't count the cost. You don't say, "Oh, I, I put this amount of effort in," so blah blah blah, right? There is no expectation of reciprocation or appreciation. Love is blind. Love does it, and I accepted that. And now I clean the kitchen, and whether my you know my wife complains about how bad I do it, whether you know she gives me appreciate, does not matter. I don't care. Because love is blind. I'm doing it straight out of love. And yet, we get angry because we start out with good intentions. Which is, you know, I really love my wife and I'm going to clean the dishes. And then my wife comes in and she'll say something like, oh, it's dirty over here. And then we get all angry. Right? We get all angry because she doesn't recognize that we're doing this out of love for her. Right? Which is really not. You're, you want that appreciation. And, you know... And uh, she doesn't recognize that you're giving a best effort to this, okay? And and that all she recognizes are these bad things. So love is blind. If you're going to do it out of love, okay, then accept the complaints that it wasn't done perfectly. Accept it that they don't appreciate you. Accept it, okay, because love is blind. And the verse I chose, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Ignorance is bliss. I love this. You know, that comes with the other cliche, Curiosity killed the cat. Okay? It's childlike simplicity. Okay? The more we know is not going to help us. All right? Ignorance is bliss. And I think the way that you can imagine this is children have a simplicity. Children who are young. Now, I was just telling this to a friend of mine. I said, if you look at five and six year old children play, 
they really don't care if that child that they're playing, that other child that they're playing with is green, purple, blue, or short hair, long hair. It doesn't matter. They just play, okay? There's no complexity in there. There's no rules. They just play with the draw. You know, they have this imagination. They're playing with trucks and all that other stuff. But as soon as they get older, they start learning more. Oh, he's different. He's brown. He's green. He's you know, long-haired, short-haired, whatever it is. Ignorance is bliss. And children exemplifies that bliss when they're playing, when they're having fun. Okay? So the scripture quote on this one, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That was Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 through 4. Ignorance is bliss. I have a friend of mine, and uh, people and, and uh, their loved ones are dying, and uh, they're getting less and less like uh, coherent. And I said, you know, that's just God's way of making them back into children again. That's God's way of making us into children so that we become ignorant of the world and we become children for God to accept us. That's what we go. And the saying says, we're adults once, children twice. Once as a child, young, and once when we're a child, when we get older. And that's God's way of making us a child again so we may enter heaven. All right. And then we have... Um, uh, real quickly, there's no time like the present, you know, and, and uh, the cliche I always like is don't worry, be happy. Okay. And I think that, you know, what we have to understand on this one is focus on the present moment, focus on the present moment and the fact that we, you know, look at that. And the scripture quote I, I, I take on this one is now as they went on their way, he entered a village and a woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with, with much serving. And she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion, which, will sh which shall not be taken away from her. Listen to this. Here is Jesus. Okay? And Mary knows exactly in this present moment, this is the opportunity to be with Jesus. Living in that present moment, Mary says, I am going to be with Jesus. This is not an issue of, you know, a lot of theologians, and a lot of theologians, but a lot of love priests will go, oh, that's the religious life versus the second. It's not about that. It's living in the present moment. All right? If Jesus walked in your house right now, are you the type of person that's going to be like, oh, Jesus, I have to clean the kitchen, I have to clean the bathrooms, and I got to make sure that I vacuum, and I got to do. Right? That's what Martha did. All right? Anxious about these worldly things. 
when the Son of Man, the Son of God, is walking in your house, all attention, that present moment, should be focused on Him, Him alone. Okay? That's what we do. That's the living in the present moment. No different than when we go to Mass. When we go to Mass, or when we do prayers, do we go, oh, did I, did I do the laundry? Do I do this? Do I do that? And then you're trying to do Mass at the same time? No. All focus is on Christ, living in that present moment. When we are with our children and we say, honey, I'm going to spend this 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes or 30 minutes with you, all focus on that present moment. So live, there's no time like the present to live in that present moment and get that done and focus it on that. Okay? And lastly, the one that I disagree with the most, okay? This is the only cliche I disagree with, and it's better safe than sorry, okay? Um, I, in fact, I, I, I would be, honestly, it's the opposite. Um, I, I look at it and say, um, if you're uh, safe, you will be sorry, okay? Um, don't be safe. Now, don't be, you know, uh, when I say that, we shouldn't be uh, taking risks on, you know, that are completely unreasonable, okay? But taking a level of risk is important, okay? Following Christ is risky. I can tell you that right now. Talk to any, you know, uh, Christians in the Middle East or in China or the underground church in China, the underground Catholic church in China. They will tell you how risky it is. It is risky. Take that risk. Take that step. The scripture, you know, I, I didn't write it down, but is the story of Peter walking on water in the storm. There's only two people who walked on water. <clears throat> that is Peter and Jesus. And Peter went and walked. It's amazing on water. But it, eventually his faith ran out but he did for a split second. Take that risk. All right? Because the saying is more like, you know, if you're safe, you will be sorry. You will regret your life when time goes by. So let's end it with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, help us to appreciate these cliches. Help us to love you more and to act on these cliches, and to learn the wisdoms of the age. As we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thanks for listening to me, David Sees at Practical Catholic. Here's a reflection for you. Take a moment and reflect, what cliche really resonates with me, and how can I make that practical in my own life? Feel free to share your reflection or leave a comment on the podcast, Instagram, and Facebook at Practical Catholic, or visit my webpage at practicalcatholic one that is the number one, dot com. You're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom.